I just feel like identifying how you work and understanding that it's not, like it's not a flawed way, it's just that there's boring people who are in charge and want you to think it's flawed is really helpful to me. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Starley Kine talks about the making of her celebrated podcast, Mystery Show. I feel like a lot of people are like, the journey is even more interesting than the solving. I wanted the solving to also be interesting. I wanted it all to be interesting. Starley Tide in February at the 2022 On Air Fest in Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Starley. Hi. This past New Year's Day, uh, my wife and I were channel surfing and came upon a marathon airing on the Sundance Channel um, of one of my favorite television shows as I was growing up. And we not only spent the rest of the day engrossed in the show, but we ended up watching the entire 10 seasons over the course of the rest of the month. All of January was dedicated to this show. The show was Columbo, which in my research, I discovered that when you were in the second grade, you were not only obsessed with Columbo, you wanted to be Columbo and even dressed up as Columbo in school. So I was wondering if, because I think that there are a lot of really young people in this audience, if you could describe the show and the character a little bit to our audience today. The show Columbo. I feel like people have, do watch it maybe now, but I'm not, yeah. Cause it's very comforting, it's very comforting. <laughs> it was uh, a, a smattering of, of applause. It's cool though, it is cool. I've watched it so much since, I've watched, rewatched it so many times. It, is, it definitely is a cool show. He's very rumpled and smart and authentic. He's got incredible instincts. I mean, he's like this like shaggy detective who likes his, the same coat. Often his coat, well, they try to take his coat away from him and he needs the same, he needs his coat. I feel like for such a shambling figure, he's actually quite at home everywhere he goes and everyone is trying to, they underestimate him, but they also do want his approval. He's great, he's, he's, he's iconic, he's so wonderful. Columbo was one of the few shows that I found I could watch during the pandemic. There was a lot that I thought I would be able to watch and I couldn't and then I kept coming back to it. One thing that I loved when I discovered was that the final episode, the stars of the final episode, and he had the best guest stars, were actually not even born when the show first started. Really? Yeah. The, like later when it was like the 80s kind the of? Last, the last episode that aired featured guest stars that hadn't even been born when the show first began. Oh, That's wow. how long it had been on the air. But it stopped for a little while. It there did. was a break. It did. He had the coolest people on because it was when TV was not considered cool. And so because he was cool and because he was from these Cassavetes movies, he was able to get people on that were actually cooler than TV could get. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Johnny Cash. I mean, Johnny Cash episode is incredible. Uh, it's one we're of really going to talk, just so you know, we're going to talk about Columbo the whole yeah. hour. <laughs> it's really good, though. Also, Columbo is 75 minutes long without the commercials. So they really do feel like films. And the whole beginning, when you see 
the murder, commit the murder, are so, it just takes its time to unravel, and you really get these character studies that's unlike any show I've ever seen. And so you get this entire, sometimes they're like, it's like 20 minutes in that beginning. Oh, at least, sometimes yeah. longer yeah. before and, he even shows up. Yeah, and so you just get this whole story, and the settings, it's really hard to come up with like good set pieces. And the worlds of Columbo, like every time, you're just like, I want to be in that world, I want to be in that world, I want to be in that world. It's amazing. I refer to it, when I'm writing stuff, not, not just with Mystery Show, but for other stuff, I always come back to it. Well, you said that you like the slow pacing and also the way they used music in this show. Yeah, I like the pacing. I don't think it's slow. I just think it's patient and takes its time. I just think it's allowed to breathe and actually have character development in a way that like most things are not. Only two more questions about Colombo, and then we'll move on. <laughs> so good. The first is, do you remember the episode with Kim Cattrall? Oh. So there we are watching, and then all of a sudden, it's like a brunette, young Kim Cattrall. She plays this sort of college student ingenue. Was that a later one? No. Earlier? Mid. 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 I've, the ones I rewatch the most are the, well, I kind of skip around because there's good, there's gems in all the seasons. I don't remember. Yeah, it's yeah. worth seeing. I'll yeah. send you a link to that episode. And then the last question is, you said you identified with Columbo. Yeah, I mean, I do definitely identify with him now. I've never shaken, I guess, the identifying. But I, I do, when I was little, I was so drawn to Columbo and I did dress up. I did a whole school report as Columbo, but it wasn't about Columbo. It was playing him, like I identified as Columbo, so that I, and so I, I to totally came to class, and I think it was, like a, it was an unrelated thing. It wasn't about mysteries, it wasn't about TV, it was like a book report or something, but I was in character, and I always loved him. And, but I didn't know how cool it was. I didn't know how cool Peter Falk was. Like I, it, it, was, an, it was a case of me being right without realizing it. It was not always, most of the things you like when you're a kid aren't the cool stuff. He was in one of the funniest movies of all time, a movie called The In-Laws. That's a good, yeah, Which is. is, with What's Up Doc, two of the funniest movies of the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned. And he's also in Wings of Desire, that Vin Vendors <gasps> movie, which, yes. but in that movie he plays Peter, Peter Falk, and he's an angel in it. And so it's saying that Peter Falk is an angel. It's not saying the character is an angel. Yeah. So then I was like, this great reveal. Like, Vim Vendors is like, I oh, know I'm telling you guys he's actually an angel. Your mother, for your 16th birthday, got a Columbo impersonator for your party, and you were mortified. I was. I wonder when I said all this in an interview. Um, I, oh, they're in lots of different ones. Yeah, this was I, great to find all of the Columbo connections. It, people did like to ask me about Columbo. Um, yeah, I, it, was, it was horrible. Because I was like, wait, <laughs> I just wasn't in an age where I wanted an impersonator at a birthday party to be. I don't know why. It was like having a clown at your 16th birthday. <laughs> it was crazy. It was horrible. It was really horrible. I'm sure I did not take it well and let her know for sure. You grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Your father, Richard Kine, was an architect, but his original name was actually Norman Slobotkin. Yeah. Can you share the story of how his name migrated from Norman Slobotkin to Richard Kine? So crazy. There's things I haven't thought of. These are like stories I haven't thought about in so long. Um, my mom renamed him. It's not healthy. 
It's not healthy. I mean, she was like on a renaming kick and kept renaming everybody. <laughs> so she didn't like his last name. I think she didn't, I think she thought it seemed too Jewish, even though Kain uh, is often mistaken as kind, and so it didn't, like turning him into Richard Kine didn't make him less Jewish seeming. I don't know, she just didn't like his last name. She didn't think it spoke to her, I guess. And so she, and then she, once she changed that, she was drunk on power and then was like, why don't we work on the first name too? And then like chiseled away. Were you born Starly Slobotkin? Yeah. And so she legally changed your name yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. But I thought it was like normal. We just like go to like the courthouse and like change. I don't think it was healthy. It's weird. I did a story about that for This American Life. And I feel like the longer you do stuff, like I would do that story so differently now than I did then. And that's what I, it is what I like about doing stories is that it kind of like marks where you are in time. Because now when I think of that, I'm like, that's so crazy that she did that. But at the time, I think it felt, I, I don't know. It, was, it didn't feel, I, I think I still was like coming at it more with a sense of humor than, and I have a different perspective now. So would you do it in a less whimsical way or? No, I think you have to do it whimsically because that's like your point of entry. But I, I don't know if I would do it, I guess. It just, I don't know, like it's just, you just, what, your interests change so much about what you tell stories about. You said that while growing up, the closest model you had to compare your mother to was Pepe Le Pew. My mom, yeah. Why? He's been canceled. Um, uh, because she was very clingy and he was, it was very like, much like Pepe Le Pew, the canceled cartoon character who, um, <laughs> he has been, uh, who would just like, you know, like, I mean, my, it's like my family in general is like that. My grandmother would be like, come on, Bubby. Like, you know, that kind of, it's a... Mine too. We're a Pepe Le Pew culture people, I feel. But when it's your mom, you have less tolerant, tolerant for it. And so then it just felt suffocating. Well, you've described having a sleepover at a friend's house where inevitably your friend's parents would receive a call around three in the morning from your mom asking if the parents wouldn't mind holding up a mirror to your mouth to make sure you were still breathing. I know, it's true. These really are stories from a But uh, it, yeah, she was very overprotective. Did she really think you were gonna die? I think, yeah, probably. I mean, I think she thought life, I think she just thought life was very dangerous. And so, she, yeah, she was just, a, she was incredibly anxious. You've said that your mother was both overprotective and neglectful. And in a live production of This American Life, you stated that the overprotective parent produces an entitled, anxiety-ridden adult who is afraid of the world. The neglectful parent produces a self-sufficient, self-loathing adult with abandonment issues. That's me. Um, the overprotective parent combined with the neglectful parent produces you. <laughs> I feel like I'm more the neglected kid though that in that if, in my own description I guess of people. What did I say? What did I say? You said left that the me overprotective as? parent combined yeah. oh, which what were what, the traits that I have the now traits that I describe myself as? And I was actually wondering where you found these traits because yeah, it yeah. felt like wow, she sees me. <laughs> um, the overprotective parent produces an entitled anxiety-ridden adult who is afraid of the world. 
slightly worried about my nephew becoming that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The neglectful parent produces a self-sufficient, self-loathing adult with abandonment issues. But I'm much more that second one. I'm not, like, considering she was overprotective, I seem to have only now have the traits of the neglected okay. child. Yeah, because I was wondering where yeah. that part came from. It didn't seem like that to me in your self-description. Yeah. It was probably like describing family members. But I, yeah, I don't, I'm not afraid of the world. In fact, I think I reacted, well, my, I think my little sister was, was more for a while anxious about the world. I feel like I reacted by being like, just, I'll be fine. Like, I'll just cross the street and look at my phone and... No, nothing will come for me. Like, I don't, I'm not afraid of, not afraid of the world. But now the world is scary, so I should be afraid of it. I know. <laughs> yeah. It feels terrifying, even yeah. more so in so many ways than March of 2020. Yeah. Yes. As you were growing up, your mom started leading a secret double life that no one else in your family knew about. And when you were 28, you discovered that she had forged your signature to take out loans, get credit cards, get gym memberships. And it all totaled about $70,000 in debt in your name. So. What did you do when you found this out? I was at working at This American Life and like, I got like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> it was not, um, I try, I don't know. Like I tried to deal with it. I mean, it, I guess it was very surprising, but also not that surprising. I think the main thing it did was make it me feel like I couldn't ever be financially stable. Um, and so then I didn't try to be for like a long time because I felt like everything was ruined. But now I've realized there was like, like I didn't know, like I get so excited to check my credit now and stuff because I didn't know you could actually like do, th there's so many things. When I finally did get my own credit card, I remember I just like spent it to the limit because I was like, that's what this is for, right? Like I just wasn't, not only did she do that, I wasn't taught any tools and now I'm like, oh, there are actual things you can do. How did you repair your credit? Did she ever pay you back? She never paid. Well, I didn't. It was a lot of that. Again, I like got like taken, like wiped away or like enough time passed or something. And then my dad ended up eventually like we start we made we paid off student loans. And then now I just repaired my credit eventually, but I mean, then even afterwards, there could have been a time when I repaired it quicker, but I didn't know you how to, and now I do. And then you just, I don't know, I lived long enough that you get your, I don't know. I just feel like I get very excited checking my credit now, but I should have, it's like, I feel like I have a 25 year old's credit when I should, it's just been, a, it just took a long time. Right. Yeah. Your parents broke up after 31 years of marriage and after the divorce, your dad rekindled a romance with somebody that he had met 34 years before yeah. and, and wanted to marry, but, but was turned down. Um, is he happy now? I don't know. She's not great that, she turned out not to be great, but um, yeah, he's probably happy. <laughs> what name does he go by? I think I said in that story, either one, he, go, he really does go by either one. He likes them all. You can call him any, you could call him Richard Norman probably a third name, he would respond to all of it. And what's your He's relationship? He's a little bit like a foster, like I feel like a foster dog who gets renamed and you're just like, they like probably respond to all of it. What is your relationship like with your mother now? Not great, <laughs> not, yeah. You attended New York University. You were a dramatic writing major, which you said was a stupid, really dumb major that shouldn't exist as a major. What made you decide to go to NYU, and why do you think that dramatic writing was such a stupid major? 
Well, the main thing about that department, I don't know if it's different now, but you just learned writing, but you weren't with the film program and you weren't with the acting school, you were just writing. So I feel like it should have been connected. And if anything, you should just go to school for film. I kind of think no one should go to school for any of this when they're young, but now it's different because everyone learns stuff so much quicker when they're young. That would have been my advice before. Before it used to be like, go to school for something else and then you can do film whenever you want. But now everyone kind of like knows much more than we did when we were 18. Like you learn it quicker, so I don't know. And now you guys aren't, a lot of people aren't going to school at all, so it's kind of, the advice is different. But I know with the film program, you can learn script writing and learn film, so you might as well, you should learn the technical parts of film while doing just writing. That's, I get, that would be the main thing about that program. While you were in school, you... And also probably go for playwriting, not screenwriting, because you can get a job in TV easier if you're a playwright than a screenwriter. Really? Yeah. Why is that? I don't know, they love, uh, Hollywood loves playwrights. It, it makes you stand out in a way that if you're just like a screenwriter, it doesn't. And playwriting is like a different kind of craft, and I do think you learn probably narrative in a more interesting way. And like, so that program was playwriting and screenwriting, and I kept switching between the two. But playwriting seems like a great thing to go to school for. Have you ever thought about writing a play? Yeah, it seems fun. I mean, I did write plays in college, it just I didn't know anything. Yeah, it seems, it seems great. I love plays. While you were in school, you had a neighbor, let's call her Helga for the purposes of this interview, and she thought you were a drug dealer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why did she think you were a drug dealer, and what kind of drugs did she think you were selling? I mean, she thought I was a drug kingpin, actually. She thought I was in head of all the drug selling operation in the entire village. Because that's what the signs would say. There was no reason that she thought I was a drug dealer. Nothing I did. I didn't even do drugs. Because I just don't like, I don't, I, I don't like drugs that much. But I didn't even really smoke weed because I don't like it. But everyone else in the building did. This was in East Village on 7th Street between 2nd and 3rd. Um, I, I lived right next to her. We shared a wall. So I think... Whoever was going to be in there, she was going to decide was a drug kingpin. And she really was determined about it. She tried to frame us, tried to, like she dedicated her life to my, to taking me down. She also put up at least one note about you in the building every single day. Sometimes she put up as many as seven or eight warning the other neighbors about your drug dealing. Um, she put them on the front door, over the mailboxes, on her door, on your door. You weren't selling drugs. Nobody in your apartment was selling drugs. She was lying. Why, why do you think she hated you so much? She didn't hate me. I mean, I, I really think she was, like, obsessed. It was much more a... She wasn't... It wasn't... It, it wasn't hatred. It really wasn't. It was like... She really, in her mind, thought that... We were, I mean, I had a roommate, I had different roommates come in and out. Someone just wrote, one of them, he just wrote to me, he found one of the, she would put them up, she would cut these flyers out, like these like neon rave flyers that she would find, and she would put, that's what she wrote the signs on and marker, and she hung them up with gum. Um, and she was so consumed by it, but I really don't think it was personal. We never had any, like, there was nothing we did in the beginning that would make her think that, like, it would set her off. And also, like, the, I would lived right by NYU and Cooper Union. The building was filled with kids. 
Phil and Adriana from Sopranos. Yes. And um, uh, so like it wasn't like she was like this one kid, these one college kids are the problem. And I know for like my neighbors across the hall smoked so much weed and you would open the door and you would just see the smoke come out of the thing and they were art students and she didn't have any problem with them. And so it was just, it was just that she decided that there was like this threat in the building that I really don't think was personally tied to me or my roommates. And she took it upon herself to, to like take care of it. And I feel like she, like she, it, if it had been someone else for a different reason, you could have been like, oh look, she's trying, she has her cause. But it was just not, it was just not true <laughs> at all. You but decided- it was delusional. You decided to make a video documentary about her on the fly for what you called a janky class you were taking at NYU. What was the plot of the video? It was, that class was like, yeah. Um, all I owe everything to that class. Um, it was a documentary. Like I interviewed my neighbors about her. I confronted her. In the hallway, I like filmed through the fisheye, uh, the peephole of my neighbors to catch her in the act of putting up a sign. My friend Maury wrote a song about her. I don't know, we thought we were so, uh, you know, clever. <laughs> I mean, I've no, I haven't seen, it, that documentary's on VHS, so I haven't seen it in forever and ever. I bought these little toys and I did like a reenactment. That's like the part that makes me cringe when I think about, because like we were just, I was absorbing all the films I was seeing. So like I bought these toys at this place on Avenue A between like 6th and 5th Street. There was like this shop that sold all these little toys, like little plastic toys. And I remember like, there was this toy with a little girl dangling from her arms that you press the sides and she would spin around and then I had another toy and then she would, I did like a reenactment with voices where she would spin around and like kick the old lady, and I still have that toy, or I did before I moved out. Um, yeah, but I thought I was like so proud of stuff like that. But what does it make you cringe now? It actually sounds really wonderful. I mean, it's pro- sure it's got a certain charm to it because I probably thought I don't know because it, <laughs> it just I just can picture the quality of it. Yeah, maybe I mean maybe I I thought I was just revolutionary, and I kind of was I guess, but it just yeah I don't know. Well, it certainly, as you said, that class changed your life um, at well, the time. Not anything taught in the class, just making that, doc- right. making that thing led to this American life. But yeah. And so let's talk about that. So you were, at the time you were working at Shakespeare and Company. Yeah. It's a bookstore. And one of your coworkers showed it to Paul Tuff, who was one of the founding producers of This American Life. And Paul ended up doing a story about you. Yeah. And Helga, who he took very seriously. He seemed to... Um, think that, you know, she, though the story was crazy, that she really seemed sincere about her feelings. Oh, yeah. Um, How did you feel about all of that happening at that time? What did it feel like? I mean, I was so excited. Shakespeare and Company was a bookstore across NYU. It's not related to the Paris Shakespeare and Company. It's totally kind of bizarre that they just call themselves Shakespeare and Company. But it was a great bookstore. We used, I used to, like, have my coworkers come over I worked with like all these great people and then we they would come, we would sometimes go to my building after work and I would go up to kind of roof access and we'd have barbecues on the roof and I would play the video and then you could like watch the video and you could go into the hallway and she would open the door, the old lady, and shine her flashlight out. It was like a ride. Like cause she was like 24 seven consumed with me. And so she would literally like open it and be like, like you darn kids kind of thing. And, and then that woman, 
think it was Colleen, told Paul. And I had never, This American Life was just starting. I don't know what would have happened to me if that story hadn't, if I hadn't met him, because I don't know what I was planning to do with my life. I didn't know anything about radio. I didn't know anything about NPR. And then he came over, interviewed me, and we really hit it off, really had a connection. And I was like, this is great. I'll just do what he does. This is, I love, this guy's great. And then I did. So you began as an intern after college at This American Life. Yeah, but the, yeah, and the internship was like, it still is. It's like, it's like an apprenticeship. I think they call it apprenticeship now. Um, and it's like, it was seven, at the time, it was six months. Mine ended up being seven months, seven months long. So, and you move to Chicago, you get paid. And you recorded your first story for the show about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery on a tape recorder kit you bought off eBay. Is that my first story? Yeah, I did. What, yeah. They didn't give you a kit? I don't know. They did give me a kit. I had bought, after the internship ended, I bought my own kit so I could have my own, and I ended up, and I, and I bought it off eBay because it was cheaper. So I'm sure they gave me, when I went and recorded that story, there was a producer with me, and she had a kit, and then I was like, I'll take my kit. And yours, tell us about your kit. It didn't work. It recorded, everything we recorded was blank. Every single thing. Your first show for This American Life. I guess so. I'd done like this man in the street interviews before with these kids when I was an intern. But uh, yeah, my first, like it was supposed to be my first story. How did Ira Glass respond to the kit being? He was really nice about it. He was super, super nice. I was really upset. He was, what he was upset about was that I had waited so long to start transcribing the audio because I was supposed to be, but that was because I was afraid it was bad. I was afraid that I had recorded bad stuff. <laughs> and so I didn't want to hear if it was, I was putting off hearing my bad audio, which I'm sure wasn't bad or, you know, um, but he couldn't understand why anybody would like ever put off doing that. But I think we have different brains. Uh, but he was really, really, really understanding about me using a kit that didn't, that was blank. He said it happens. And I think he told me maybe a story where it happened to him. He was incredibly understanding about that part. What's the biggest thing you learned from him? Ira? Um, uh, um, he's really good at, he's really good at, and he's really good at lots of things, but he's really good at, he really believes in people's voices. Like he doesn't actually, it might not seem the case. I don't know if it does, maybe it does. But like if he thinks you've got like a voice, like you're an individual voice that he likes, his gift is like protecting it and helping bring it out. Like he's not trying to bulldoze over it. He's not trying to be like, this is, this is what I would write. This is what I would write. Like he really likes to like sit with you. Like my favorite moment with Ira was like when he's really into a story that you're doing and you go into his office and you just like sit together. Like This American Life always says, um, let's, I need to stare at this which is what I always say now. And so, and he's really good at the staring and then you come back and like he, when he's into a story, it's very, very fun. And then he just likes to like, you know, like work on every line and he'll, he'll often, at least with me, like he'll have, he would have me talk stuff out and I would have lines written that didn't sound like they sounded stiff or something. And then he would have me talk and he would listen really closely. And then he puts, when he hears the thing that is like the special thing, he puts it in the story, but it's your voice. And he'll do the same with like emails. Like when I would email a pitch for a story and if the script turned it into something again, more stiff, he would go into the email and be like, this, 
the way you said it here when you were like relaxed and casual that's because that is like the tone of this American life and he would get that and he would put it in and he's incredible about structure too like his brain that's and I, my brain works like that too like I love structuring stuff um but I so I would but I but I would say the like what the value of a voice is what I would learn I learned from him and I do when I work with other people like I apply that to when I try to help other people. One of your most famous pieces aired on August 24th, 2007, was titled Dr. Phil, after being dumped by your then boyfriend, Anthony, on New Year's Eve. You find so much comfort in breakup songs that you decide to try and write one yourself, even though you have no musical ability, or as you've said, no music ability whatsoever. So you solicit some help from Phil Collins. Um, what made you decide to choose Phil Collins? You mean for the story? Yeah. Because there was no one, how could it be anyone else? I genuinely listened, he was the one I was listening well, to. Well, it could have been Michael Bolton. But I wasn't listening to Michael Bolton. Okay. No, I mean, it had, I mean, that's the whole thing is, I really don't like gimmicks. To, like, I might, I don't, like, I don't like stunts and gimmicks. I mean, I like, like jackass and stuff. I mean, but I don't like, but I don't, like, I, I, I always bump when I hear someone force a stunt like that it could definitely not have been Michael Bolton like it had to be <laughs> it had to be him because he was the one that he's the one I quoted when Anthony broke up with me he was the one we were listening to all the time I remember when we were doing that story Alex Bloomberg who was producing it suggested Billy Joel and I was like no it ha it's got it what it's got to be Phil Collins <laughs> like it's not that's it, it's who's in the story and it would have just felt like random and it, it, it would have been, it just wouldn't have been this, it would have been an interview as opposed to me seeking out an answer from the only person who could help me and who was the only person in the world who understood my pain. It was him. What, what is your favorite Phil Collins song? I mean, I guess, how can you just, that one against all odds. Really? Mine's, yeah. mine's um, One More Night. Sure. It's a great song. Yeah. I mean, I, but I also didn't, had never gone through a Phil Collins phase until that relationship. Were you into Genesis with Peter Gabriel? I wasn't into any of, like, I was into, we would just listen. My, Anthony was into, I don't even know if he was into Phil Collins. We went through this phase somehow. He had started listening to it, and him, and, and we weren't listening, we were listening to Phil Collins, not Genesis. And, uh, and we would listen to that song over and over and over again. Because we, I don't know, I mean, it's not the kind of relationship I'd be in now, but it was like, it was the kind of relationship where, he, like, Anthony would, like, play music, and we would just, like, listen to these songs over and over, and I cared about the songs because I was obsessed with everything Anthony did, and so I'd, like, watch him. It was very boy, listening to his music kind of stuff, but I enjoyed it because I was, like, so entranced by the entire, was, we were, like, you know, it was, like, that stage of relationship. Um... But it wasn't like I'd ever really thought about Phil Collins before that. And then I was like, he's the one I have to talk to, obviously. It's one of the, still to this day, one of the most popular This American Life episodes in its long history. Why do you think people love it so much? Um, I mean, I think people like, I think, I, I think because, because people, people can relate to it. People have, like, most people have gone through a breakup on one side or the other or experience heartbreak. I think people really like 
you know, love stories. They love breakup songs. I think Phil Collins is incredible in it. I mean, there's, there's something for everyone, I guess, in it. Like, even if you've never been in a relationship, if you like Phil Collins, he does not disappoint. And I love, I love that people like him so much from it. Like, I like the feeling. I, I, you know, a lot of times people were like, I didn't know... He, I didn't, I, they, 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 just did, they hadn't given him credit, and then they'd come away liking him a lot, and that's great. He is wonderful in the episode, yeah. and you do write a song, which he critiques and likes. Yeah. How do you feel about the song now? I haven't, I haven't listened to it in so long. I probably would like it okay. I hear it in my head a lot. Like, I, I say the lyrics in my head to myself quite often, which is surprising, but I haven't actually listened to it in so long. So you've already said you hate gimmicks, but is there any chance you might say some of the lyrics now? That's not a gimmick. A gimmick is like just trying too hard. Okay. A gimmick is just it's inauthentic. The, the, the thing about that story was I wasn't trying to do the most popular This American Life story. I wasn't trying to get, like, go viral. I wasn't I, I, I was so, so sad, like truly so sad. And I hadn't conceived of that story as a This American Life story to begin with. Like I was totally heartbroken, truly was listening to breakup songs 24-7, 100% was like the only way out of this is for me to learn how to write this song because I felt so powerless and so like frustrated. And I couldn't, and Anthony wouldn't talk to me. So I was like, I, I, everything I say in that story is how I felt. And then... And I tried to take this like songwriting class at NYU Extension that was really weird. And then, and then I mentioned it to This American Life. I did pitch it, but it wasn't like, and also I, I don't think I even meant to talk to Phil Collins in the original pitch. Like the original idea was to write this song. Maybe, I can't remember if he was part of the original pitch, but it wasn't like me being like, it, I was feeling it. I was in the throes of feeling that sadness. When I wrote to Phil Collins, I was sad. He wrote back to me because he said, he did not know what This American Life was. It's one of my favorite things about it is that he was not trying too hard either. He wasn't trying to get points. He wasn't trying to get cred. He wasn't, it's like all these celebrities are on podcasts now. <laughs> but like he didn't, it was a different time and he did not know what the show was at all. And he said he wrote back to me because I was so sad that he genuinely wanted to help me, which I think is the greatest thing in the world. And it's why he's the way he is in that. Because he's not, he's just not trying to prove himself to anybody. And... I think it just makes such a difference. And so that's what I mean about the stunt. It's a very authentic story in that way. Will you share some of the lyrics? I, I think the one I say to myself is, it doesn't do me any good. It, in fact, it does me bad. Which is, it, that's, I feel like I hear in my head. That's the one I hear in my head a lot. And then the um, I'm okay with second best just love me more and love her less, which I think is the sad, like, such a pathetic lyric that I say to myself a lot too. It's crazy that it's like rattling around in there without me hearing, without me listening to the song. Something that Phil said at the end of the episode has really stayed with me. He said that he wrote some of his best love songs while also suffering from heartbreak. And at the end of the episode, you ask him if it was better to have the song in the end or the relationship. Yeah. And he says he'd rather have had the relationship. Yeah. What about you now and all the, all this time has passed? Would you rather have had the song or the relationship? I mean, I think I'd rather have the song than that relationship. <laughs> um, 
I don't know if it's better to have, I mean, that's what it always comes back to. Is it better to have made this stuff or to like, you know, have the stuff in life and not having the record of it? I don't know. It, it, it's, I'm not sure. I don't, I do, I am glad I have that story over that relationship now. Um, and I'm glad it's document of my feelings then. But I don't know, I do think about that a lot. I do think what is, what's the point of, like what, is, what, what, what does matter the most? And Anthony never weighed in on this song. I think you saw him once on the subway after and... <laughs> did I say this all in an interview? What, did, what is wrong with me? <laughs> Why do I talk? That's crazy that I said all this stuff and it's just out there in the world. That's crazy to me now. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, I do think I can't. It's like it's not I, like it's all over the place. But it must be. It's like everything is. Ever, it's shocking to me. I haven't talked about any of the. Like I don't feel like I talk about myself that much anymore. Um, uh, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm delusional. Uh, uh, I don't. I'm. I, I'm convinced he's not heard it because I do think that if he ha when he hears it, he will contact me. Um, but I, he's never contacted me. I did see him in the subway. I don't think the story, I don't remember if the story was out when I, I, I remember it was like that when I saw him in the subway, it was the first night I had, you know, when you go through breakups or when you get broken up with at least, you have these terrible dreams about the person who broke up with you. And I, that's a thing that happens to people. And I remember that it was like, when I saw him in the subway, it was like the first night I hadn't dreamt of him. And then he was there and he was so cold and horrible to me. Like he literally on the train, he saw me and he turned away from me and would it to not, cause that's him, that was just, I'm, that it was just very much like I don't want to deal with this and so that's why I think he hasn't heard the song because he doesn't want to like think about himself or feelings he had he was just so closed off and so that I think one day he will hear it I maintain it's just like in the story he'll be old and he'll find that CD or USB drive or whatever or thing in our heads that we will use to activate audio in the future he'll like hit his head and then he'll podcast will play with a million ads first and then <laughs> and then and then he'll and he'll contact me probably with that same device he'll like send me an email through that device and yeah, and you'll be like Anthony who I wish <laughs> I did have an ex-boyfriend reach out to me recently and it was so disappointing that now I'm afraid of them reaching out to me it was, Why was so, it so disappointing because he was like so sad but not about me, like a sad, he literally said, he said he was like a sad dad who has problems finding the joy in his life. Aww. And he's like, I'm a, but it, don't feel, it was like a really annoying email actually. Okay. Cause I was like being fun and I hadn't heard from this guy in like 20 years or something. And I was like, this is fun. And he was someone that like I had good memories of and like was preserved. And then suddenly I was like, you know what it felt like? It felt like, and just like that. It felt like I love Sex in the City, oh, and yeah. Sex in the City's legacy was so good, even with the movies. Like that, the legacy of the show was still pretty intact because you could be like, the movies aren't canon, the movies aren't canon. This the show, and then suddenly, like for some reason, they decide to do this. It destroys everything that came before, and that's what I felt like he did. I was like, why are you doing this? Like I was remembering you fine somewhere in the world. Somebody was remembering you as like a winner, and now <laughs> you're just like, what is going on? And he was so aggressive about telling me how, like, how much, he kept saying he was a downer, but it wasn't like, 
I don't know. I don't know what he wanted from me because he wasn't like he wouldn't really engage with me. He just wanted me to know how upset he was with his life. It was awful. Oof. I know it was really upsetting. <laughs> yeah, and I feel the same way about and just like that. It really upset me. Yeah, I know. But I want to talk about your show. I want to talk about Mystery Show. In 2015, you launched really one of the greatest podcasts ever made. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, titled Mystery Show, funded by Gimlet, you spend each episode solving a question that couldn't be answered. Mystery. Well, not a question, a, a mystery. Solving a mystery yeah. that couldn't be answered by Googling it. And... You investigated a video store in Tribeca, which seemingly closed overnight with your, without your friend returning a copy of the movie Must Love Dogs, why Britney Spears was photographed holding one of your friend's fairly unsuccessful book, and so forth. And it was an immediate hit with the mysteries described as simultaneously banal and extraordinary, and in doing so ended up revealing far more than originally intended. Mm -hmm. Was that what you intended? Yeah, I mean, I intended for it to be like, I feel like a lot of people are like, the journey is even more interesting than the, than the solving. I wanted the solving to also be interesting. I wanted it all to be interesting, but I didn't want it to be, I wanted you just to be engaged the entire, the entire time. That's what I wanted. You know, one thing that I kept finding over and over again in my research was people telling you at the time, oh, it's so good that Serial came out so that this could be happening. And it was like, no, this came out before Serial. It didn't come out before Serial. I had the idea before Serial, and I made the okay. pilot before Serial. Serial was like the big bang in a lot of ways for what's, what, what the podcast industry is now. So Serial so came out in, I think, August of 2015 um, or July or something and I but I had made the pilot like most of the, the pilot the, most of the version of the pilot that you heard um, like two years before and but there was no podcasting there was a little bit of podcasting there was uh, Mark Marin and there was like Bullseye but it wasn't like what podcasting was although Mark Marin was so popular and I remember sending that pilot around to places and they all, like radio stations, and they all liked it and they didn't know what to do with it because there was no podcasting. And so it was just like, literally there was no, there was no way to get it off the computer. So Serial is not what gave me the idea, but right. Serial did come out first. But you had the idea first. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, yeah, I have, a, I have a file dates to prove it. So, <laughs> were, you, were you pursuing several mysteries at once, or were you only pursuing the mystery about the video store and the mystery about the Britney book? And, like, how, how were you managing all of that at the time? I was pursuing them at, several at once. And the video store one was this pilot that I did. When I say pilot, I mean, it was the pilot, but also, like, I did it without anyone telling me to do anything. Like, it didn't... Like, there was a BBC incubation program that I, I think it doesn't actually incubate anything. And um, there was this great guy, Colin Anderson, who works now, he works for Airwolf, and I guess that's Sirius, no, Stitcher, Sirius now. I love Colin. And he worked at the BBC, and he, he kind of told me to do this. And it, it was very informal. And so I just went and went down to Tribeca. I needed to forced myself to do something because I was like in a rut. And so I just like went down there and like tried to solve this mystery. That was a very different process than the others. And then the others, 
in the season I was, yeah, pursuing, I was doing them all at once. So part of what makes the Britney story so wonderful is you're actually meeting Britney. Yeah. If you hadn't met Britney, if you weren't able to solve it, what would you have done? Would you have canned the whole thing? Yeah, I would not have, I would have met her. I definitely wouldn't have put it out without having an answer, especially that, yeah, that was the whole reason Mystery Show was so stressful, but also exciting because I needed this, these episodes that I liked, I couldn't put out unless I also had the answer. And I remember going to that meet and greet, that concert, and like my heart was pounding so much because it was so much at stake. Because if I didn't get her to talk to me, then it was all over. I mean, I would have, I guess, tried to, I mean, I guess I would have waited till now until when she's suddenly like all Gabby and like tried to, like, <laughs> like I don't know. But I, I mean, I, I would not have put it out without her. You said that she smelled very lotiony, and <laughs> I was I? curious, like flowery lotiony or more musky lotiony? Not musky, like coconut oil, like suntan lotion. Okay. Yeah, not flowery. Uh, maybe like a little powdery kind of smell, but mostly like a suntan lotion kind of. So that's not yeah. Is she tall? Yeah, I mean, I was like, it was so surreal. It was so surreal because she's in her whole show outfit. My producer had messed up. I feel like I was very good about this and I didn't get upset, but it could have cost us the whole story where she thought it was after, the meet and greet was after and it turned out to be before and I just happened to look at the ticket and I was like, I think it's before and I had to like race, race there and I would have totally missed it because she was like, the plan had been that we had scheduled, and my producer was really good about scheduling, but this was like an oversight and I, I was gonna go there and I thought it was after. And so we all, it was so close. But you get so few, you got so few times with her because she was under her father's, you know, it's all been, I feel like my story is only added to the pile of evidence about what happened to her. And uh, you get so few times and it's very bright back there and they don't want you to, st- they don't want you talking to her. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, she seemed definitely, we took a picture together and she seems so much bigger than me, but I'm, look like freakishly small in pictures, so I don't know. She's probably normal height. Apple Podcasts designated it as the most successful new podcast of the year. It was the top-rated show on Podbay, yet after six glorious episodes, Gimlet canceled the show without giving you any notice while you were working on season two. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what happened? I mean, they gave me notice in a sense that, like, I knew that they wanted to cancel it. <laughs> like, I didn't, like, I knew that they were, like not being super supportive. It was the number one show of the year. Why would they want to cancel it? I mean, my theory is that I think it was very stressful for Gimlet to have a show like mine that was so unpredictable and took time. Although, you know, that season one a mystery show I made in seven months. To me, that's not that long to like solve six Mysteries, produce, edit, conceive, write, everything. and uh, That's one but, a month. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, some of those, the thing that going into Mystery Show for that first season was I knew almost every mystery, what it was going to be. The hardest thing was finding mysteries that were interesting enough to solve. Um, it, was, it was even harder than solving them. It was like like the right kind. And so I, le- I knew mostly, because I'd been like thinking for a few years about the show. Um, and so like season two, I had to like, I had to find the mysteries, but I also had to like, get back into the mindset because they had, not only did they cancel Mystery Show after, in the second season, but first season was, a, was stopped. That was actually, like, we, I was, there were supposed to be more episodes, 
And then Alex from Gimlet said, we're stopping it now. Season one ends now. Then you can go work on season two. And I really did want that to happen because I had such momentum, not only with like people liking it, but creatively and just how I work, it was, I was just like in such a flow state. And so then season two was just like having to ramp back up to that. And I think Gimlet was very stressed by, what I loved on Mystery Show was just a source of stress for them because they would rather do a show that was like, you do the Britney, but you don't have to solve it. And that's what I didn't want. And I also think it's what makes Mystery Show so good is that it, it's just like the stakes of it. And so by the time I was working on season two, Gimlet no longer needed a show like Mystery Show because it was already established. It didn't have to have a hard show. It could have a show. It could have, it could just, what, what did it matter with the, I mean, and some of them are, different varying levels of difficulty with Gimlet shows. I don't listen to Gimlet shows now, but I think that was the main thing is why be stressed when you don't have to be. Well, artistic integrity and innovation. Yeah, but that didn't matter. And so like, I think if it was like, if the goal is to be sold to Spotify, which I think essentially is what the goal of Gimlet was, and if it showed that you don't need to have a mystery show to sell to Spotify, why have a mystery show? That's, that's what I think their thinking was. I, I think they think they gave it a chance, but I think, I think the reaction to the way that they treated the show and me after having this wildly successful season was the part was the problem. Like, was a very confusing. It didn't feel like I wasn't made to feel good, <laughs> and that's and that's. That's confusing when you've made something that not only is good, but is a hit. Any thoughts on never bringing it back somewhere else? I mean, I, try, I did try to bring it back. I had also, like, every company that tried, that said they were interested in bringing Mystery Show back fell through. Um, it hasn't been, like, a good experience after, like, and varying levels of, like, oh, my God, that's so fucked up to just, like, like or t timing, but, and then I think I could have also brought it back myself, you know, like through crowdfunding, but I think it's been, it's been hard. Like I find it really hard to re to access how I felt making that show. Um, cause I loved making it so much and I was so into it and I was so just disillusioned after what happened. Like it really, I, I never, I was very trusting and very much believed in just like the, like you said, the integrity of the work and the way that the podcast industry has evolved has made me just, I, I just feel completely different about the medium now, or at least the business of it. You've gone on to work on additional podcasts and more in television. You're currently one of the co-hosts or sometimes co-hosts of election profit makers. Yeah. And you've also branched into television. You've been in the writer's room for the HBO series Search Party. And you do voiceover for an adult swim stop motion animated surrealist comedy titled The Shivering Truth. Very little voice. I mean, like three lines. But, but yeah. it's kind of cool. Yeah. What's it been like moving into television? Do you like it more or less differently? I mean, I worked on Search Party for five seasons. So it's different I really wanted to challenge myself. I really wanted, I just don't like feeling like I, I can't do something or I'm denied doing something. Or, and when I first worked in the room for Search Party season one, it was really intimidating to me because it was scripted and it was comedy people. And I went in, at first I was like, I'm, 
like all cocky. Like I know narrative. I worked for this, this American Life always prided themselves on, you know, we're the best at narrative and we can st structure anything. And it was so actually daunting being in that room because it's a whole different language. It's a whole different way of thinking about story. And, and it was really hard. I found it hard. Um, and that, I think I, I wanted that because I wanted to I wanted to learn how to do a new thing and I wanted something that felt like out of my comfort zone. That's kind of a cliche, but I did. And I just want to have more options. I just want to know how to do as much as possible. You stated this about writing. I'm the kind of writer where it can take days, weeks, months before I'm able to start writing. Starting is absolutely the hardest part. My brain needs the conditions to be lined up just right. So what are the conditions for you? Yeah, I learned a lot about, like, I love neurodivergent TikTok. It's the best. Um, I love the ADHD stuff, so helpful. Um, In what way? Well, like, what, why is it helpful, neurodivergent TikTok? Because, like, I love, I love all this stuff. I love this, like, the destigmatization of everything that was stigmatized before. And so I feel like when I look at the TikTok about, like, brains and specifically ADHD, but also just, like, different, like, ways of, like, uh, processing and cognition and learning, like, it's so empowering because it's just, like, oh, anything that I thought was, like, a bad way to work before is just, like, it's just like the wrong brains are in charge of everything. Like these like like these like guys who are so mediocre who have just who have brains where they make their little lists. Their brains aren't better than my brain or definitely not better than all these like kids on TikTok's brain. It's just that they're in charge of everything. And so they tell you that you're doing it wrong, but they're they're wrong. they're not right. And so um and I feel like I apply to, I apply a lot to when I think about mystery show, like the way like I know mystery show is good. And I think a lot about how I was when I was working on it and how, why it's so hard for me to like get back into that thinking. And it's cause like, it was like, I do, like what you're saying, what I said about once I start and I'm off, I got, with Mr. Show, it's like I started and then once I start, I could just do kind of anything or at least I can, you know, w within the limits of the idea. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I, I just feel like identifying how you work and understanding that it's not, like it's not a flawed way, it's just that there's boring people are in charge and want you to think it's flawed is really helpful to me. How do you feel being in a writer's room collaborating on writing? I didn't know how that worked and my wife is, was working in a writer's yeah. room as well and so she's like kind of collaborating yeah, yeah. with other writers in writing. How does, how do you, how does that work? We were, Roxanne and I were in a writer's room together. Um, uh, it works. It's really, I mean, it's, I, I haven't been in that many rooms, so I only know about the ones that I've been in, but I, I mean, in search party, you don't write in the room at all, which is like a dream for me because writing to me is like the most painful part, at least until I finally get started and I'm like in it. But, uh, that's what I think I was found so exciting when I first was in a room because it was just like a bunch of very smart, funny, interesting thinkers talking all day. And it's and 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 that talking turns into plot and structure and jokes and script and scripts. It's it's amazing. It's so productive. The last thing I want to talk to you about is something that you wrote in a rather unusual medium. Um, several years ago, you worked with the Thing Quarterly, which was an object-based publication and brainchild of the artists John Hirschhand and Will Rogan. And your issue was called. 
a marvel of attractive simplicity, a brown cardboard box containing a text-laden cutting board. And the text was titled Crying Instructions and was exactly that, instructions for crying. And though I was a subscriber for the first two years of the thing, I forgot to renew my subscription after issue eight. And so I missed issue nine and 10 and 11 and 12. And I desperately tried to find when you're sold out immediately. Yeah. It took a few years, but I finally found one on eBay. And after a furious bidding war, I won it. Hmm. I have it here. It's not the brown. Oh, I'm not telling. Was it really a bidding? Was it really a bidding war? Oh my god! Really? Yeah. And I actually Who found another it? one. Yeah. Years later, because I had an alert on your name, so I found another one, and I gave it to Paula Cher, who's like one of the type typography geniuses of our time, oh. and she loves it. Oh wow! Um, but this is mine. This is the original one. Oh, this is this no. Is, this, I this gave is Paula the original because yeah. I wanted her to have. This is a redo. They did yeah. another one. The reissue. So the, the, yeah. The, the reissue is this one. This is the second one. The first one I gave to Paula, and so I was wondering if you could read the crying instructions, and then also if you would sign it for me. Sure. So crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to sign on the front or back? Whatever you prefer. I know that you want people to use these. I do. I, Paula does not. I do not. One time somebody was staying in my house and they did. So now I had to hide it whenever anybody <laughs> new stays in my house. I hope I see marks. That's good. Yeah. But that was not intentional. <laughs> and I was very mad at Zoe Mendelson for doing that. She used it a lot. I see a lot of marks. Um, to, do you want to read it? Yes, please. So this is Crying Instructions by Starly Kine. Today, so... It's so weird to read this after all this time. Today I am the crazier person because I bought an onion at the farmer's market. This onion made me cry, so naturally it reminded me of you. I opened my notebook and read from a list of questions, starting at the top. How did you decide to become the type of person who wears a tattered straw hat? This is also about Anthony. I had uh, a feeling. Not deserving. Has there been one night where you have gotten very drunk and kicked over a potted plant, sick with the realization that you have lost me? Would you mind tracing your shoulders onto a large piece of paper so that I can see if they are as narrow as I remember? The onion, of course, didn't answer. It really had you down. Starly, Starly Kine, I could talk to you for hours more. Thank you so much for making so many beautiful things in the world. And thank you for joining me today here at the On Air Fest. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.